Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back to our number two of episode 142 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. Well, today we've been playing you clips from the Self-Defense Radio Network, the shows that are found there. And we ourselves are a proud member of SDRN.us. And so our theme is a few of our favorite things. And we have just a wonderful lineup of informative clips. And I, I have to say that, you know, once in a while, Dan and I have to do some recording off-site. And so today, as we're, we're off-site... I don't know if you can hear that, but I sure can. Not only do we have the wonderful sound of freedom because we're not far from uh, Luke Air Force Base and, you know, the planes are, are circling and they're training our, our next generation of pilots and it's just a wonderful thing. But also our yard guys decided this morning was the time to come and mow the grass. So I don't know if you can hear all of that, but uh, if you can, that is, that's why it sounds a little different this morning. They might not hear it because the dogs are barking too. <laughs> so yeah, we are a professional show. So uh, anyway, we just have to laugh sometimes because, you know, it, it's real life. That's just the way that it goes. Uh, being self-employed is, is often the same way. You know, you think you got all your ducks in a row and everything is going to land just right and then you... It's like, yeah, maybe not quite exactly. Since when have we had our ducks in a row? <laughs> what are ducks? Do we what even have roll? ducks? What is in a row? All right. Well, on with the show. Our first clip this hour is from the show Unload and Show Clear. Host Lloyd Bailey interviews world champion Bob Bogle. Now, Bob has won multiple titles in IPSC, which is International Practical Shooting Confederation, in IDPA, the International Defensive Pistol Association, and the USPSA, United States Practical Shooting Association. And those of you out there who are listening, who know who Bob Vogel is, I literally just heard you nerd out that you're going to hear <laughs> an interview uh, done by him, and, and it was worth nerding out over, and you'll see why as we dive into that clip from Unload and Show Clear. Welcome to Unload and Show Clear, the podcast about all things IDPA. And now, here's your host, the slayer of non-threats, Lloyd Bailey. Back when I first started shooting IDPA in 2011, 
IDPA sent out a, a DVD with your membership card and, and it was by Pantio Productions and it was an introduction to IDPA. And I, I poured through that and I looked for, for more of, of their, uh, their videos. And the first one I found and the first one that I actually bought was called Mastering IDPA featuring today's guest. He is the three-time world champion and 24-time national champion in IPSC, IDPA, and USPSA. Uh, the one and only Bob Vogel is our guest. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's, a, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, we know all the accomplishments. We've seen the videos of you blindfolded shooting Mozambique drills mm -hmm. at, at like insane speeds. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Talk about you grew up in rural uh, Western Ohio. I, I went to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, but I never ventured out to Western Ohio. St. Mary's is okay. what halfway between Columbus and Fort Wayne, Indiana, kind of out in yeah, pretty, pretty much. That's pretty much out in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's where <laughs> I grew up. Yeah, outside a little town called St. Mary's. And and so you grew up there. around guns. Yeah, yeah, I grew up. Uh, around definitely not the, the competition thing i never heard of that that before but in a hunting culture i grew up on a farm you know mm -hmm. so we were hunting and shooting and around animals since i was a, you know a very very young kid and um just kind of transformed from there and you were out uh, hunting by yourself at an early age right yeah yeah so i, I started I, you know, I got my first bb gun i think i was six years old and my first shotgun when i was nine years old and i was i was out hunting squirrels and rabbits pretty much by myself not not too long after that and then uh it, it i was always trusted with it with a shotgun or rifle at that young but not a handgun my parents were very strict on my dad especially on a handgun just you know looking back it would be a lot easier to have an accident with one so Right. Um, but I started watching a lot of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood movies kind of coming up, <laughs> coming into being a teenager. And that really, got, especially Dirty Harry, that got me fascinated with, with handguns. And I, I wanted one. And I en ended up buying when I was 15 years old. I <laughs> snuck and bought one by myself without my parents knowing about it. Um, somehow kept it from them for, for a few months. And then I ended up getting caught. And, and they, I got in trouble. They took it away, but they, they, they gave it back to me. And uh, but that same age, I bought a, a book called Combat Handgunning, uh, written by a guy named Chuck Taylor, who was a, a Vietnam vet. And uh, that really got me interested. That was about the age I think I decided I, I thought I wanted to be a police officer. So, What know, was that gun, well, that first gun that you went out and, and bought? The, the first one, I I'll definitely remember, it was a Smith & Wesson Model 19, uh, 357 with a four-inch barrel. <laughs> and uh, my my buddy that lives down there, a few years after that, I had to have a Dirty Harry gun, the 44 Magnum. And so I had I didn't have any money back then, right? So I had to sell that gun to buy the 44 Magnum. And I sold that gun to my buddy, who was one of my good friends, lives right down the road. He still has it. I, I tell him all the time I want to buy it back from him, but he, he doesn't want to sell it back to me. So <laughs> that's, how, that's how that is. You know, you, you entered the police academy right out of high school. What was it? What was the... Um, what motivated you to want to go into law enforcement? Was it Dirty Harry? Honestly, it was, it was, it was, I liked guns. I mean, I, I thought I, I just was very, yeah. I mean, it would probably scare people looking back, I guess, but I was very into guns. And I, it, to me, it was like, okay, law enforcement or military. I mean, I read different books. I, some of the old Bill Jordan things, it just, just a lot of that, that old school stuff. I read all the gun magazines since I was a, a kid. And, but that, that got me into that. So yeah, I got out of high school, went into, uh, two-year police academy program where I got out when I was uh, 21 and then um, and that's when I while I was in the academy is when I started shooting competitively too so 
what was it like on the mean streets of the Bean of Lima, Ohio? You, you was it was it as exciting and and uh, action packed as the movies portray it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, and, and being a police officer in both places, or I know I heard it described once, you know, as hours of boredom followed by moments of of excitement, and that's kind of what it has turned out to be. I mean, I definitely got a lot of interesting stories uh, over the years with that. Nothing, nothing too crazy, but I think a lot of people overall don't realize the things that happen, even, even in a smaller town somewhere that they don't, I mean, obviously if it's something major, somebody gets murdered or there's a shootout, you know, everybody's going to hear about that, but just more of the regular stuff, um, you know, different fights and things like that. And, and just, there's a lot of things that happen in most places that I don't think your average person realizes. Right. And you served actively for what, eight and a half, nine years? Yeah, eight and a half. Well, full time. I was a full time police officer eight and a half years. Um, and I'm still technically a sworn officer. Um, so before and after uh, I've been on the auxiliary, I left full time six to seven years ago. And I stayed on as an auxiliary officer. So still technically a sworn officer, but it's not been my, my real job. So pretty much most of my 20s. Yeah, regular full time. Second shift, most of the time I was on. Um, it was a SWAT team, a joint county a SWAT team. I was on that for most of the time, which was kind of one of my favorite things to do um, when we got call outs and things like that. But yeah, so it was it was a good good part of my life. And that's where you you started actually teaching there as well, right? You became the firearms instructor for your department. Yeah, I was. I did end up being the, it didn't really take too long, the firearm. It just kind of, in a department like uh, somewhat smaller one like mine, you know, if, if you're a guy that really likes guns, you know, you're going to gravitate toward that. So went to, you know, the two week long state instructor school and became a firearms instructor for the department. And then I was also one for the, the SWAT team too. So I was usually one of a couple of guys that was in charge of the training that we would do with that. And I, I did like that part of it. We'll talk more about your uh, your instructing your training philosophy a little bit later, but I want to I want to hone in on how you got how you went from uh, sworn police officer to I'm going to go out and shoot an IDPA match. Where did you hear about? Yeah. How did you get involved in competitive shooting? Sure. Well, I started shooting matches before I was a police officer. So I was I was 19 years old. I was in the police academy when I went to my first IDPA match and. I've been reading the gun magazines for years since I was a kid, and, and uh, I read a thing called IDPA, and I, it was the early days of the internet, so I got on the website and, um, you know, saw some things and found that there was a club uh, an hour away from me, and, you know, just kind of called the guy up and asked him, he told me about it, and say, yeah, we shoot every fourth Sunday, and so I decided to to show up, and I, I had read the rule book before, and I, I you know, I, I really thought I was, was pretty squared away. And I went up there. I was a little nervous because I was 19 and, and I was by myself. So you're supposed to be 21 to have a handgun. And I was, I can't remember if I actually had to, but I, I was fully prepared to lie about my age and say I was 21, which I might've done and not remember. I can't remember. But anyways, I went up there and, um, and actually won the match that, that, that was a, I definitely will never forget that. I was local match. There was like 19 people there, if I remember right. And, and there was a couple of guys that were ranked expert. Most guys were underneath that. Um, and I had never competed against anybody other than my friends and my family. And I, I was, yeah, I was better than them, but they, they didn't do that. Right. So I had no idea where I was going to stack up. Um, and I went, I remember they put me on the beginner squad and I'm, you know, there's only a couple of squads or whatever. And I, I know I shot a lot better than those guys, but they said, Oh, the guys that know what they're doing are over there. And I was trying to sneak over to watch them and see how they were doing. I, I, I was really interested. I was 
competing. How how am I going to do against these guys? And they sent the email scores a few days later, and I won the match. I think by like ten or twelve seconds. And, um, <laughs> it kind of a little 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 light bulb went off in my head, like, oh, you know what? You're you're young, and you know maybe if you really devoted yourself to this, you could uh, maybe you could be one of the best at this. And so from that point on, especially, I, I was just kind of had a one track mind uh, for for a lot of years, and, and still, I guess today, and and it maybe a different way. But uh, that's really what, what started on. And then I started going back um, pretty much every match from that point on. What was, so, uh, yeah. what was the first uh, gun that you were competing with? What division? Yeah, the first gun of all. So I, I started out with that revolver. <laughs> and then when I was 17, when I was 15, go with the revolver. And then when I was 17, I got a Beretta, a 40 caliber Beretta in my 96. I, I think because I watched Lethal Weapon. <laughs> um, really. <laughs> and then I read an article in a magazine yeah, about an H and K. It was an H and K forty-five expert with a little longer slide. That okay. it just I was read some rave review on that. And it was an expensive gun, you know, for me at the time, it was like twelve hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And I saved up all my money. But that's the gun that I started competing with. I shot that for about the first year that I competed in IDPA and an SSP of all things. It was a forty-five, and I 40. shot an SSP. And I was <laughs> yeah, but I was I was reloading since I was about fifteen years old. So I, I was shooting my own ammo. Oh wow! So I was reloading, and and I didn't have a chrono, but later on, years later, I found some old ammo, and I, I was shooting like a 145 power back. So I wasn't shooting full power 45 loads, but that's right. that's the gun I started competing with. How long yeah. after that first local match before you shot your first sanctioned match, and what was it? Where was it? And what do you remember? Yeah, I definitely remember that very well. Well, I shot the first state championship was the Ohio State Championship. Uh, it would have been an O2, and that would have been about what six months, roughly after I shot. It was the following summer. I started in the fall, so it was about six months, roughly after I shot my first club match, and I was winning those. And I went there, and I'll never forget. I almost won. I I came in second by four one hundredths of a second. <laughs> um, and on the la- I'll never forget it. On the last stage, it was kind of a memory. Back then, you had you actually had some memory stages. And I came around and I shot a no shoot. I didn't miss and hit the no shoot. I shot two shots right in the center of the no shoot, thinking it was a shoot target, and realized it afterwards. Right, so I lost five seconds plus whatever time it took me to do that, which is maybe a second or two, six or seven seconds, and then I end up losing by four one hundredths of a second. I was so yeah. On one hand, I was happy to be up there, and the other hand, I was kind of crushed. But then because of that. I went to the West Virginia State Championship just one month after that. I wasn't planning on going that, but I that that kind of stung me so much that I I made plans and I went to that and I won that one. And uh, on that one, I ended up uh, beating a guy who the previous year had been third in the nationals in IDPA. So that really kind of like wow, man, maybe maybe I could be right up there even on a national level. And that's when that started. Stick around. We have lots more coming up right after these messages. I'm Charlie Cook from Riding Shotgun with Charlie. Conversations in the car about gun safety, freedoms, and even a few laughs. Imagine you're in the backseat listening to an intimate chat with me and my passengers as we drive all around the country. Listen, watch, and subscribe to the Riding Shotgun with Charlie YouTube channel and podcast. Your front door. Your car, your gun. 
safety is a habit. Gun safety and responsible storage are no different and the best way to help prevent accidents, misuse, and theft. Cable locks help keep firearms secured. Learn how to get a free firearm safety kit. Visit projectchildsafe.org. If you have a firearm, own it, respect it, and secure it. Brought to you by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Thanks for sticking around. You are with Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. Well, today we are playing clips who uh, from some shows of friends of ours from the Self-Defense Radio Network. And we're calling this a few of our favorite things. And uh, for sure, this next clip comes from a couple of our favorite people. Uh, it's a second helping of Eye on the Target Radio. So in addition to the clip from hour number one, we have Rob Campbell and Amanda Suffolk offering some great information on the importance of cleaning and testing pre-owned guns before you shoot them. So sit back, relax, and here we go. Well, folks, this is the section of the show where should you be interested, we will field calls. Rob and I have been doing Eye on the Target Radio for eight years until we went nationally syndicated. And because of that, we've moved around, we've done some stuff, and now we're reconnecting with our listeners for them in the new cities to understand kind of how interactive this show potentially could be because it could be, it is your show, and it could be that we could, we could answer the questions, we can talk guns, and um, hear your stories, hear how things are in your family and who passed down a gun or how you got a gun or where you learned to shoot. Any of those things are all of interest. Well, I uh, recently bought a gun, and uh, when I was playing around with it, because I buy old dilapidated guns, because mm -hmm. that's the kind of gun I, I like. Right. So this was an actual, it's a Mauser 88 commission rifle that someone had cut it in half and shortened it all up and then walled it all back together again, and then they rechambered it from its original 8x57 caliber to 22 Hornet. And they made a new bolt and everything. Well, while they were playing with it, they they were shooting loads that were hot enough that it actually started to break the um, locking lugs off of the bolt. So uh, here I got the gun, and uh, when I'm looking at it, you can see where the, the locking lugs are starting to fracture at the back as the, the bolt's being pushed out of the middle. Had I not paid attention to it and then just shot it, the bolt could have shot right out of the thing. So And usually and your right head's there, right behind that's there. that's where your face is. Right. So you, you want to double check something, especially when you're looking at a gun that's halfway homemade or 150 years old or something like that. It's always best to, to go over it, clean it, inspect it before you go out and shoot it because not nothing says that it, every gun is in perfect working order. And if you don't know what you're looking at, this is where they say have a competent gunsmith take a look at it. and Because the gunsmith's not just looking at it going, oh, pretty, oh, shiny. And if it's something He's... that's actually... Um, a weird caliber, or only ammo is made for it by hand. There's no factory mm -hmm. ammo or something like that. 
a lot of times it's best to to tie it to a tree or something and shoot it remotely with a string around from Just the back side sure. of your truck so that <laughs> you make sure that it, you're not holding it when it blows the pieces or whatever. Well, but, there is that. But, you know, the other part is is that knowing... So if you're building ammo, knowing the load data and knowing where... You, right now, we get so much information off the Internet... Right, and ease, some ammo is easy to make. I mean, if you're loading 9mm ammo, there's a lot of information on the Internet that tells you, like, the load data. You can check it from one site to another to make sure that you're getting real information and somebody didn't invert the numbers from 4.8 to 8.4 or something. And uh, so you want to make sure that you double-check so you get a couple of verifiable spots instead of just uh, picking a number and say, oh, that looks good, and all of a sudden you find out that you're triple-charging it or something. But if you're loading something that's really obscure that you have to make the bullets yourself, like a 577 Tyrannosaurus or something like this, there's not a lot of people are shooting that. So is you, there really something called a 577 Tyrannosaurus? Yes, there is. And uh, if you've looked on the <laughs> Internet, there's actually a group, they're in like a laboratory, and they're, they're wearing turbans on their head, and they're test firing this thing. Oh, yes. And I again, like, it throws them against the wall. It sticks in the wall. It, 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 it's, a, it's an immense thing, and it kicks like a mule. And Yeah. So anyhow, there, there's a lot of, there's everything you can get from, like, a, about a 12-caliber flea to this 577 Tyrannosaurus Rex thing that's in, in between. And a lot of people just come up with an idea. They make a bullet. They make a... They load one, make one gun for it or something, and now it's out there. And then later on, they, they either pass away or they, they lose interest, and they sell it to somebody and buy something else and play with it. So you may get one of these, and uh, if you've got a 19 Calhoun, you, you want to look at the load data and find out where you can get the stuff. And just because it's a 19 does says 19 on it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a 19. It may be a 20 caliber. They just called a 19 because all the 20 caliber cool names were used up. Okay. So um, this recently, there was a uh, guy that on one of my forums on the thing, and he he was loading a uh, a 6 millimeter gun. And the the old days, the the 6 millimeter used a 236 diameter bullet. And uh, he thinking 6 millimeter was 6 millimeter, he bought the modern 243 diameter bullets. Well, it caused some problems and destroyed his gun and and that. So you want to make sure you know what you're actually buying and using well, instead of... And then, I mean, and sometimes the newer stuff happened. Let me, let me the one that, that comes to mind for me was the fact that Ruger had the Vaquero, which was a large framed 45 long Colt um, revolver. And then later they came out with the new Vicaro. And the new Vicaro was a smaller frame, and it can't take the load, and it can't take right. the... If, if, but if you're shooting standard 45 Colt ammo, either one of those will work. It's when you're trying to make a magnum out of something that's not a magnum. Now your little lightweight Vicaro is all of a sudden not set up to handle that kind of a beating. And what you can shoot out of a full-size Ruger... The old Colts and a lot of the Italian copies, it just turns them into a hand grenade that looks like a pistol. So you want to be aware of this. And, and just because your buddy says, here, shoot some of my ammo, 
his may work fine in his gun, but it won't shoot in yours. And you want to you want to make sure that you know this before you you find out by blowing your gun apart or something. Uh, right. If if the the best case condition is that your gun blows up, the worst is that you right and up, parts of you are in the way when it happens. Right. I mean, there's a lot of guns that good quality guns that got a that got a bad rep because somebody put them together wrong or they loaded them wrong or something. And uh, the 1910 Ross rifle is a is a one that's it, most of those. If you have one, it's got a warning label on it. Don't shoot it because you'll uh, end up eating part of it. Um, it's due to the fact that the bolt can go together in two different directions. One way it works, the other way it shoots the bolt out in your face at 3,000 feet a second. So it, it's really hard to concentrate on shooting when the bolt hits you in the head. And, uh, uh, yeah. So you want to make sure that you know what you're doing. If you don't know, ask questions and get that from two or three reliable sources. Don't just believe one guy who's sitting in his mom's basement telling you he's the expert on how this works. Because it's on the Internet. It's got to be true. It's got to be fact-filled. It's got to be. And when you're talking about your hard head that's in the way, you really want to protect it and take care of it. So firearms and safety go together. And firearms and reloading right. and safety are absolutely There's an explosion true. in that thing, and you don't want to get out. <laughs> yeah. Keep the explosion <laughs> on the inside, not on the outside. We'll be back. You're listening to Eye on Grab the Target Radio. and head to Georgia to train with the Complete Combatant. The Complete Combatant offers a unique approach to self-defense training, layering the first signs of danger, lethal versus non-lethal decisions, and even surviving the aftermath. They offer premier firearms training with a range master certified instructor and host the top minds in our industry. See the courses offered on thecompletecombatant.com. That's thecompletecombatant.com. That really is, Dan, such important information. And you being a gunsmith, I mean, you, you've got to have some, some thoughts and comments on that. Well, every time we work on a gun, we have to check to make sure there's nothing in the barrel. Because if we test fire a gun, maybe somebody left a cleaning rod in it or a wire brush. You know, there's all kinds of things that you have to think about. So it's good information. Absolutely. Well, stick around. We've got much more coming up with our Responsibly Armed Citizen Report right after these messages. Hey, everybody, this is Joey Rocket Shoes Dylan, world champion gunslinger and Hollywood gun coach. In the Westerns, there's always a good guy and a bad guy and sometimes the ugly guy. And I always root for the good guy, which is why I'm here to tell you about the good folks over at azfirearms.com. They are straight shooters and always give you the best deal in town. azfirearms.com is the biggest little gun shop in Arizona and have something for every single gun enthusiast. Long guns, pistols, hunting military, law enforcement, home protection, you name it. And when you've got some guns to sell or trade in and trade up, azfirearms.com are the folks to see. Geez, they bought a cannon once. They are family-owned and operated, friendly staff, courteous, totally reliable. azfirearms.com will give you the best value for your used guns. So stop in, see my friends Dan and Cheryl Todd at azfirearms.com in Old Town Avondale off the I-10 and Dysart Road and tell them Joey Rocket Shoes Dylan sent you. 
Hey, ladies, Cheryl Todd here from azfirearms.com. Many of us ladies are taking the important step of becoming responsibly armed, but it can be an intimidating process. And with all the politics swirling, a first-time gun buyer, whether a guy or a lady, might feel uncertain about where to begin and who to trust. At azfirearms.com, we are a small, friendly, family-owned shop that specializes in first-time gun buyers. We are staffed with knowledgeable people who are ready to help answer all of your questions. My husband Dan and I pride ourselves on having a safe, no-pressure environment. Once you have decided on a purchase, azfirearms.com partners with professional firearms instructors who will train you to become a responsible, safe, prepared, and proficient gun owner. So ladies and gents, when you are looking for personalized service and a huge selection, come to azfirearms.com in Old Town Avondale off the I-10 and Dysart Road or visit us on the web at azfirearms.com. Thanks for sticking around. You are with Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. Well, if you've missed any portion of today's show, please go to our website, gunfreedomradio.com, click the On Demand tab, and binge listen to your heart's content all of the episodes we have there. And if you want to put a face with a voice, click our guest tab. You'll find photos and bios and links to all the works of all the guests that we've ever had on our show. It is a wonderful resource and we do not hate it when you spend time there. All right, so this is the portion of the show where you would normally hear our Responsibly Armed Citizen Report. And today, since we're doing a few of our favorite things show where we're bringing you clips from different shows that are on the Self-Defense Radio Network, we are going to leave it in the capable hands, the very capable hands of Rob Morse and David Cole from the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast. I'm glad you found us. Welcome to episode 132 of Self-Defense Gun Stories. This podcast is for people who are curious about a firearm for self-defense and for those who already own one. I'm your host, Rob Morse. We're joined this week by self-defense instructor, David Cole. David, from Facebook, I can see that you've been busy. I have been busy working, shooting, and uh, out hunting in the field. Out hunting. Did you bag anything yet? It's hunting, not shooting, so no, not yet. Been out in the deer stand a few times, but we haven't met up yet, but we're still looking. (laughs) For those listeners who just discovered us, would you introduce the podcast? Certainly. We study several examples of where gun owners have survived a life-threatening situation. Were they lucky or did they just have a plan? What should we do if we were in their place? Our first story took place last week in Midlothian, Texas. Are you armed as you drive and go shopping? You're waiting in the car as your wife finishes her grocery run. You're 58 years old. It's 9 o'clock at night when two strangers walk by your car. The 21-year-old man waves to you and says he hasn't seen you in a while. The strange man jumps in the front seat next to you. The 19-year-old woman jumps in the back seat. 
That's when the man says, I've got a gun. I'll blow your head off. The next words out of your mouth, I'm going to send you to heaven. You're a concealed carry holder. You have your gun with you. You draw your firearm and point it at your attacker. Both of your attackers run from your car. You don't fire as they run into the grocery store. Instead, you call police. The police arrest the pair after fighting with them. Both of your attackers are charged with aggravated robbery and resisting arrest. Dave, you were a police officer. How often does this sort of thing happen? Well, Rob, it happens every few minutes across the nation, and it's a good thing that our victim today was armed. Well, I agree with that. It's also a very good thing that he was able in this situation to defend himself without firing a shot. Is that common or is that unusual? Not unusual at all, and some numbers go as high as 93% of the time there's no shots necessary. It's also good that he didn't shoot as they ran away because it's not a self-defense situation anymore once they break that attack off. As a police officer, did criminals ever see you and run away? Sure, all the time. Criminals thought this victim was going to be an easy mark. He pulls out a gun, and the criminals do what criminals do. They want to run away. What would you tell your students to do in this sort of situation? Lock your doors. Nobody should be able to just walk up and hop in the car with you. Okay, that makes sense. He did have his permit, and he probably could have benefited from a little bit more training. A couple of things we can learn from this. He was carrying in some sort of bag or pouch rather than on his body in a holster, which is usually not the optimal way to do it. It's just too easy to become separated from your gun. And it can be a slower draw. Mm -hmm. He drew, but he didn't fire, even though he believed that he had an armed attacker in the car with him. Now, if you read the news story that's linked here, we find out later on that the perpetrator in the front seat who said he had a gun was going to kill him just had his finger up under his shirt, didn't actually have a gun on him. Either way, our victim would have been justified in shooting. Not only would we have been justified in shooting our attacker, mm -hmm. that would have been best practice. It's what we recommend it's what trained law enforcement would do if they were off duty. Assuming that the bad guy's got a gun and he's prepared to shoot you, well, you just gave him the first shot. And that usually leads to a bad outcome. Is it easy to present a firearm or does it take practice? A lot of what we do is simple, but it's not easy. All of it takes practice. Now, if you can find a good one-day class that can teach you things like how to draw and present your firearm from concealment, maybe introduce a little bit of movement and some multiple shots and things like that, you're going to up your odds quite a bit. So it doesn't take a lot of time to get an adequate level of skill. Isn't that like a piano lesson in the sense that the instructor is showing you how to perform the movements, but to make them automatic, to make them fluid, you have to practice on your own. You know, a good one-day class is a great way to start. Hopefully, if you belong to a range that allows the kind of practice you need, you can go to that range and you can practice your draw. You can practice some of those drills. Truth be known, even if you can't do it at a range, you can always do dry practice for a lot of that stuff. It's mechanical repetition of the motion that is going to help cement that in your body. What I'm struck with is that our defender was right. If they'd done this to your teenage daughter, that could have been the end of her. She could have been kidnapped, taken from the site, and all the guy has a finger in his pocket. Wow. And to go back to the very beginning of this conversation, think about how differently this might have turned out had his doors been locked. Even if they were armed, if they were going to attempt to break into the car, if the doors are locked, it still buys time. And that's something that anybody can do, whether you have a concealed carry permit or not, is lock your doors. Let's go on to our second story. Okay. 
Our second story happened last week in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Are you armed when you go to sell your motorcycle? It's almost Christmas. Some of us need cash to buy presents. You decided to sell your motorcycle, and you found a buyer on an online app. You agreed on a price and agreed on a place to meet. It's 8 at night when you arrive. The buyer looks at the bike. Then the buyer points a gun at you and demands that you give him the keys. You're a legal gun owner. You're armed. You move, draw your firearm, and shoot your attacker in the chest. Your attacker drove away with his friend and was then arrested at a local hospital. You stayed at the scene and called police. This is a great story, Rob, because we have another one where our victim successfully defended himself. And it's a good thing he had his gun with him. Again, was this the right thing to do to shoot somebody over a motorcycle? This wasn't a fight over a motorcycle. This was a response to an immediate imminent threat to life. You're allowed to defend yourself from an unlawful use of force or the reasonable threat of it. And the robber pointed a gun at the intended victim. And the reason he did that was to make that victim believe that he was prepared to kill him for the motorcycle. And unfortunately for the robber, the victim believed his threat and was prepared to do something about it. Our defender stopped when the robber ran away and the threat ended. That's what you tell your students to do. Sure. First and foremost is avoidance. The victim did the right thing in selecting an open public space for the meet, but according to the story, he was by himself. A good piece of advice might be, if you're going to meet a stranger to do an online sale exchange like this, maybe take a friend with you. And if you don't have a friend, you can consider going to a local police department. A lot of them are very happy to have you use their parking lots for these kinds of exchanges. But the second thing, and, and our defender did really well here, is that if all the awareness and prevention and preparation failed you and you got to go to the gun, be decisive. You want to be trained in proper presentation from concealment and able to execute it quickly. Remember, in this case, the robber already had his gun out, so time's critical. It doesn't say specifically, but I'm sure movement was a factor as well. Again, where would your students learn that? Fortunately, there are a lot of resources out there now, a lot of local Gun stores have ranges, have instructors, a lot of clubs. There's good places now to go and get good quality training. And another great avenue for honing these kind of skills, and I know I say this a lot, and Rob's probably tired of hearing it, <laughs> things like USPSA, U.S. Practical Shooting Association, IDPA, the International Defensive Pistol Association, or even simple steel plate matches are great opportunities to work at least two of the three components of what's known as the combat triad, marksmanship, gun handling, and mindset. And you certainly get marksmanship and gun handling practice in these competitive events. David, I know you personally. You've been studying martial arts for years. How long does it take to learn to defend yourself with a handgun? You know, that includes that mindset component that you mentioned but said we wouldn't get from shooting competition. When are your students competent defenders? Well, the short answer is the learning never stops, whether it's martial arts or shooting a gun, which I guess technically is a martial art as well. You know that I'm a believer that even minimal training is, is often, air quotes, enough. I don't think it takes a whole ton of training to at least be competent in defending yourself. And we see that in the numbers a lot of how many times guns are used defensively every year, how few times concealed carry holders are prosecuted to get any kind of legal trouble or fail in their defense is, is very rare. They actually mostly all do very well. 
and we know from the training numbers that most of these people don't have a whole ton of training. That said, more training is always going to be better. You get in, what, one course a year? Certainly try to, and then I compete regularly on, on the weekends during the summertime. Again, the more time I can spend running the gun, learning the mechanics, polishing the mechanics, and practicing my marksmanship, the better I'm going to be. And I do notice if a certain month I can't go shoot my, my monthly USPSA match, when I go out the next month, I, there's a little rust that's got to be knocked off. And when you say it's an odds game, mm-hmm. you're saying that your students might defend themselves from almost all the criminals, but because of your extraordinary skills, there are very few criminals that you couldn't beat between your firearm skills and your bare hand skills. Practice pays off. Right. You know, there's no guarantees. I could be the best gunslinger in the 50 states, and I could still mess up, and I could still be taken by a criminal. There's no guarantees. I can be the best martial artist in the world, but if somebody attacks me and I take a step back and I trip over a a rock or something or a curb and fall, I could lose. But with that regular training and practice, I better my odds and make it more likely that I'll come out of it okay. Let's go on to our next story. Okay, Rob, our third story happened last week in Moss Point, Mississippi. First, this message. Such an important discussion, and we're going to wrap up on the other side of these messages with uh, David Cole and Rob Morse as they are taking the reins with our Responsibly Armed Citizen Report. Stick around. Be a part of the gold rush and head on down to see my friends at Pot of Gold Auctions in Avondale, Arizona. Or check out the auction online at potofgoldestate.com. These folks auction off guns, coins, jewelry, and antiques of every kind. Everything is going, going, gone. So you best hurry and tell them Don Collier sent you. Come in and stake your claim with some live auction action at Pot of Gold Estate Auctions. Visit our beautiful air-conditioned showroom off the I-10 at Dysart Road at 215 East Western Avenue in historic downtown Avondale. You will find a friendly and knowledgeable staff, comfortable chairs, and we even serve free birthday cake at every auction. Or bid from the comfort of your home at potofgoldestate.com. Auctions take place the first and third Tuesday of every month and are full of a great mix of antiques, collectibles, jewelry, guns, and coins. I'm Charlie Cook from Riding Shotgun with Charlie. Conversations in the car about gun safety, freedoms, and even a few laughs. Imagine you're in the backseat listening to an intimate chat with me and my passengers as we drive all around the country. Listen, watch, and subscribe to the Riding Shotgun with Charlie YouTube channel and podcast. Welcome back to Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. 
Well, we are about to come into our home stretch here. We have our responsibly armed citizen report being very capably handled by two guys that I just happen to really admire and respect, Rob Morse and David Cole of the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast. And just as a quick reminder and why we do the Responsibly Armed Citizen Report, it's because responsibly armed citizens use guns two and a half million times a year for self-defense and 200,000 times a year a woman prevents a sexual assault because she was armed. Somehow we never hear these stories on the network news, so we are proud to bring them to you here on Gun Freedom Radio. So sit back, relax, and learn a thing or two from Rob and Dave of the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast. Our third story happened last week in Moss Point, Mississippi. Do you have a gun nearby when you wake up unexpectedly? It's 8 in the morning when you hear something happening in your garage. You're not sure what's going on. You get up, you pull on your pants, and you put on your gun. You walk to the center of your home and hear someone at your front door say, No one's home. A few seconds later, your front door is kicked open and two men rush inside. You shoot them. One of them is able to run away. You back up to your bedroom and call police. The second criminal was arrested when he was dropped off at the hospital with life-threatening injuries. Well, daylight robberies are becoming a lot more common as the economy improves. In this case, it's probable that the burglars or the robbers probably thought the owner was at work. So if you're homesick and you're normally at work, garage doors closed, they just kick the door in anyway. Sure. This turned into what we might call a hot robbery, but it started out as probably a burglary, and that's the way it happens a lot of times. We hear reports of things called home invasions, but because a lot of them happen during the day, they started out as a burglary, and oh no, the owner's home, and now it's a robbery. You've seen this sort of thing before, or is this fairly unusual? Not unusual at all. Think about if you were a bad guy, how would you attack you? How would you burgle your house? You'd much rather burgle the house when nobody's home, so you do it during the daytime when the occupant's at work. Right. It's not uncommon at all to see daytime burglaries thinking that the resident is gone to work turn into a robbery situation because the resident is home and it turns into a confrontation. What did our defender do correctly? Well, for starters, it looks like he shot well. There were two of them, and he hit both. And, of course, he had access to his firearm. It's way too easy to get complacent in our own homes and go into condition white when we talk about the colors of awareness, white, yellow, orange, and red. And I would maintain that condition white's not even safe at home. you still got to be on alert somewhat. You should have your firearm handy. You may not have time to reach for it. My personal motto, and it's the same with a lot of us, is pogo, pants on, gun on. If I don't have my gun on, I'm not dressed. (laughs) Gotcha. He defended himself immediately. It sounds like this transition from a burglary to a robbery very quickly. He did not hesitate. He knew what to do, and he did it, and shot until the threat goes away. Once one of them was down and the other ran away, he stopped. He didn't pursue, and he called the police. If the robbers had merely rung the front door Mm -hmm. and our defender had walked up and opened it, 
he might have been overrun. Could have been. Talked about keeping the doors locked in the car earlier. I'm also a fan of keep your doors locked at home. You know, we like to think that, well, I live in a safe neighborhood and there's no really real need for that, but that's simply one of the layers of your defensive perimeter that if you leave the doors unlocked, you're dropping that layer of the perimeter. If you have a knock at the door that is unexpected and you go and open it for them, then you've removed another layer. I'm perfectly happy to call out someone through the door and ask, who is it, before we even think about opening it. What would you tell your students to do in this situation? Keep the doors locked. Call out through the door. Don't open until you know who's out there. And it wouldn't be a bad idea in a case where you've already heard noise around the garage. Something's going on that's suspicious. Why not go ahead and call the police before you investigate? The bad guys are still outside. The police are outside. Let them meet up out there. You stay inside. That way, the police can do their job, and you're not required to confront the criminal. Worst case, they get in. You can always retreat to a safe room, whether it's a bedroom or another room where you can take some cover, lock the doors, wait on the police to come. If they pursue to that far where a confrontation is unavoidable, then you do what you have to do. That's a lot to think about. It's simple, but it's not easy. Right. It's not the same thing. Our fourth story took place in Georgetown, South Carolina. Are you armed as you work at a cell phone store? Now, here are two stories. They're related, but they have very different results. In the first story, you're getting in your car parked at a Walgreens parking lot. A woman points a gun at you and tells you to get out of your car. You jump out, and the robber drives away with your car. The next day, a different person is working at a cell phone store. A man dressed as a woman comes in and points a gun at you. He demands that you open the cash register. You're a legal gun owner and you're carrying concealed. You draw your gun and shoot your attacker. He runs out of the store, firing his gun behind him as he runs away. Your robber dumps his stolen getaway car. Both the man and the woman carjackers drive to a nearby city. They're arrested as they drop the wounded man off at the hospital. Wow, Rob, so we've really got uh, two stories in one here for this one. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of different lessons for each one. The first one, just like our first story in this episode, lock your car doors. Again, we have an example of somebody sitting in their car with the doors unlocked and a bad guy jumps in with them and robs them of the car. Could have at least been slowed down, if not avoided altogether with locked doors and just drive away. In the second one, there was a lethal threat and this one could defend themselves because they had a gun. That made it moral because it was a lethal threat. So you're justified in using self-defense. Moral and legal. If someone attacks you with lethal force or the reasonable and imminent threat of it, you can defend yourself. Why didn't the bad guy fall down and die when he was shot in the cell phone store? From the story, it looks like he was shot in the stomach. And while that certainly can be a lethal wound and a serious wound, it won't necessarily stop the attacker quickly. What's best practice? What should we do? There's really three ways that a gun is going to stop a violent attack. The psychological stop is where either through the presentation of the gun or being shot, the bad guy decides that they've made a mistake in the victim selection process and they don't want to do this anymore and they leave or they quit or surrender or whatever. You can also stop somebody with a gun through organ failure caused by blood loss. The bad guy gets shot, they start bleeding, organs begin to fail and they go down. Just like it sounds, 
that takes a little bit of time. Or the third way, a hit to the central nervous system, which basically turns off the main breaker and ends it right there. And that's really difficult to do. So we need to learn to shoot our self-defense handgun, and we need to be committed to shooting until the threat ends. You have new students who say, I have this, I'll call it a beginner handgun. Mm-hmm. It's something they're comfortable with. It's something they can become familiar with. They get to practice all the mechanics, but it wouldn't be what we call a self-defense handgun. Both of those might make a robber decide he doesn't want to get shot anymore. They're equally good, perhaps, for a psychological stop. But if you have to physically stop someone, that's when a firearm you choose and how you use it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Certainly. Of course, there are plenty of examples of, you know, for example, a 22 being used to not just stop a bad guy but kill them, and it, it can happen. But it might not be optimal. It's certainly a good practice handgun. It's certainly a good training handgun. And they're fun. And that's great. And the mechanics of marksmanship are still pretty much the same no matter what you're shooting. But if you want to really be able to get either the stop through blood loss or the central nervous system stop, you're really probably going to need something more powerful, something in a center fire caliber. The big three in the defensive world are the 9mm, the 40 Smith & Wesson, and the 45 ACP. Shouldn't leave out the revolver rounds that you see a lot of times, 38 Special and 357 Magnum. These are all considered service calibers that you can use in self-defense. But it's important to note, because a lot of people like to look for the mythical, air quotes again, one-shot stop doesn't really exist, and you should never count on that. It needs to be something that you can fire multiple shots, achieve multiple hits in a critical area center mass. When a student comes to you, their first gun that they use might not be their last. It certainly hasn't been the case for me or you. It can turn into a hobby. It can get into competition. But I think when we're starting out a student, say, on a 22, some of them may never get past that. And if that's the case, that's perfectly fine. It's better than a pointy stick in harsh language. Once a student becomes more comfortable with firearms, once they become more skilled in marksmanship, it usually isn't a very big leap to step up to something like a 9mm or a 38 that is much more adequate in a self-defense role. We described a number of robberies in this last story. Did you see many like this when you were a police officer? Fortunately, not a lot, but that only means it was uncommon in my particular town. Things like this do happen, and we've been talking a lot about odds and averages in this episode, and the odds of being a a victim of violent crime might be low, but the stakes are high. The good news is, and that's what we're trying to bring here, while it takes some effort to be personally prepared, it's doable. David, thank you for bringing your expertise to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Where can we learn more about you? Thanks, Rob. I always enjoy talking to you as well. My training website is Aegis Solutions. I'm on Facebook there. And I also write about gun rights at blackmanwithagun.com. To our listeners, would you please leave us a message on the podcast Facebook page? We share this podcast with you for free. All we ask is that you share the podcast with a friend and give us a rating on iTunes and Stitcher. We are also available on Google Play Music and Spotify. This podcast is part of the Self-Defense Radio Network. Other podcasts are available at sdrn.us. I'm Rob Morse. We'll be back next week with more self-defense gun stories.
Well, I definitely was reminded of a few important things, probably learned a couple of things. Uh, That entire uh, segment, two segments, was really important. And they do that every week. Rob does that every week on his show, Self-Defense Gun Stories Podcast. So please take a look at that and all of the great shows on the Self-Defense Radio Network at sdrn.us that we ourselves are proud members of. And so for now, we have to wrap up. It went so fast. But uh, I would like to thank our tech crew. Thank you, Ed, for all you do. Keep me on time and help splice things together and call all of our, our guests. It's just tremendous work that you do, and we appreciate you. Thank you to our listeners and for the conversations that you have about what we talk about here around your dinner tables and in your carpools. And thank you to our guests for bringing us their special areas of expertise in such a, a understandable way. You know, it's, it's, they break things down in such a way that it's just really easy to, to help us learn new things. And until next time, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders. All of them? All of them, Dan. All right. <laughs> Even the ones you don't like. Maybe especially the ones you don't like. Be good to each other. Have a great week and God bless. Our founding fathers here in this country brought about the only true revolution that has ever taken place in man's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another set of rulers. But only here. Did that little band of men so advanced beyond their time that the world has never seen their like since evolve the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and the ability to determine our own destiny. But freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free.